At Freedom HealthWorks, we're focused on putting medical professionals back in control of their practices. Utilizing a structured, tailored approach to business, startup, and operations, it could make sense for you to work with our professional team to avoid expensive pitfalls and, more importantly, expedite your journey to success. As we all know, time is money. If you're involved in the practice of medicine and desire to practice free of headaches and constraints, reach out for a no-obligation consultative conversation. Call us today at 317-804-1203 or visit freedomhealthworks.com. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Healthcare Americana. I am your host, Christopher Habig, the CEO and co-founder of Freedom HealthWorks. This is a podcast for the 99% of people who get care in America. We talk to innovative clinicians, policymakers, patients, caregivers, executives, and advocates who are fed up with the status quo and have a desire to change it. We take you behind the scenes with people across America that are putting patients first and restoring trust in American healthcare. We couldn't be really right by ourselves without including mental health in what I consider to be American healthcare. It seems like it's all the rage these days, especially in the medical community, with physicians coining the term burnout, or more more accurately, hospital administrators telling physicians that they're burned out. But is that truly more of a mental health issue? Extend that all the way to medical schools and extend that to the general population with social media, which I think is just the absolute bane of our existence. Anyways, beyond that, getting into a, a, a good, valuable mental health conversation and just resources because it feels like a lot of the medical profession is either hamstrung or handcuffed to be able to deliver and give people the support that they need. So people are rightly looking for alternative solutions. Joining us today is Jonah Salida, co-founder of Dial. Jonah, Thanks for joining us here on Healthcare Americana. This should be a very intriguing conversation. Yeah, thank you so much for having me here. I'm very grateful. Now, I kind of played my hand there in the introduction and kind of exposed my true beliefs there. So give us a little bit of background, kind of your story and why you decided to really go all in on trying to help people who might struggle getting help with mental health issues. Yeah, my story is is really interesting. You know, everyone has their own story when it comes to mental health. Mine came from the athletic side. Growing up, for a lot of my childhood, I was trained to be a really highly competitive tennis player. I went and played college tennis then, and it wasn't until I broke my back twice and tore both my hips, my labrums twice, that I hung up my rackets and said, you know, it's no more competition for me. But really, fortunately, along the way, I had built up an incredible team, like almost Team Jonah around me, where I had a sports psychologist I got to work with. I had a nutritionist. I had a coach that would come with me. I had a trainer. Um, And while I had that whole team with me, I don't think at that time I was truly aware of how many skills I was building proactively before I ever needed to get to any place where, you know, people are hitting rock bottom or struggling. Like I had, I'd really built a lot of those initial building blocks. And so flash forward, I lived in a bunch of different places. I went to school in New York. Then I lived in Hong Kong for a while, lived in London. And when I was living in London, I got COVID before anyone knew what COVID was. This was in the end of February, 2020. And so I flew back home. The borders closed in the middle of my flight. We're like, "Uh oh, this isn't good. It's supposed to be a seven day trip. Ends up being an eight month long trip. So I turned all my other work that I was doing previously because I worked in kind of the ad space and in the freelancing and creative world, turned that into like a one-man army agency, was doing really well. And then because I was born and raised in Minnesota, the death of George Floyd was really, really close to me and close to my best friend, Marcel, who gave me a call not too long after the death and also after the death of Ahmed Aubrey, because at the time he was going for nightly runs in Boston. 
And he just gave me a call and said, look, Jonah, as a queer black man going for nightly runs in Boston, I don't feel safe. Um, and we had a really deep conversation about the social political unrest that was going on about healthcare, because I was doing some consulting for a direct primary care clinic in, uh, in Minnesota as well. That kind of was like Uber for healthcare. And we were just chatting about why are so many of these resources inaccessible? Why is our younger population so willing to talk about mental health, but are so you know infrequent to actually getting access and taking that first step? And why is it especially terrible for underrepresented communities? And, and how can we make a difference? And so after that phone call, Dial was born. We built the, the first alternatives to 911 speed dial, hence the name Dial. We added a second L because we wanted it to be inclusive of all from the very beginning. And really from that point on, we didn't set out to build some company. We didn't set out to just instantly say we're going to go solve mental health and, and do it right then. It was really just that we wanted to provide a better resource and not just post you know, a black square on social media or, or, uh, or just participate in a lot of the value signaling. We really wanted to take action. And then when we did that, we had the opportunity to interview tons and tons of people across the nation. A lot of them were survey-based and then it turned into interview-based. And then we started getting some really unique data that is just still not really being reported about at all, which is that, you know, a lot of this, these problems start really young. So most everyone knows that they start before age 24. It's like 75%. Um, NAMI and a lot of other publications are really big on that. But what people aren't reporting is the fact that um, there's a lot of interesting places for trust in younger audiences, like younger audiences, specifically Gen Z, um, really trust their best friends more than anyone else, more than a professional, more than a parent, more than a social worker or a student or anyone else. Um, And it's really fascinating to hear them talk about that as well as where they're currently spending all their time in the day. So we did a lot of fun surveys about screen time where they would hold up their phone and say, we'd ask them, show us your top five most used apps. And then we would really quickly see that on average, Gen Zers were spending like seven and a half hours of time a day watching short form video. So you're like, oh, let's pair these two together. They trust their best friends for all these advice, not someone with a fully formed brain. They're going to social media all day long. So of course, that's where they're getting their information and feeling validated and feeling normal. And then we're looking around at all these mental health companies popping up left and right. Like there's the calms and the headspaces and the join reels and the talk space and the better help. And it just is an endless uh, deluge of resources being shared. But a lot of them are just really second and third step options. You know, you can't just start meditating and put your hands like this and say, let's let's start meditating unless you know what it is and why it's important. And you're not going to get anything out of it if, unless you have that. Same thing with therapy and all these other options. And so we started looking into just like, how can we make a bigger difference in the preventative side where it's so fun that you almost don't realize that you're being educated. And then simultaneously, when you're thinking about that, not only understanding that it's really fun, but also making sure it's clinically valid. And so we spent a lot of time over the last two years iterating and and talking to users. And and I've really found just from youth mental health in general, that mental health is not something that people are taking action on, not because they don't have the skills, not because they're not interested, but because the care landscape is so fragmented and so much like an obstacle course that they really want something more relatable and fun. So that's kind of my background into this space. I think that was around the world in 80 days, man. That was a whirlwind. (laughs) A lot of information there, a lot of good stuff. I'm going to, I'm going to see if we can just draw out some little, little nuggets right there, just following your track, because it it sounds like when you went out, well, well, first of all, you got into this because you had a a close friend who reached out, um, who who didn't have anywhere else to go and calls a friend says, Hey, I'm really struggling with some things. These are my thoughts on my mind. I don't know who else to talk to on this one. What was your reaction when you started to pull a lot of that Gen Z and realized, holy cow, my experience wasn't limited to just my friend and I. This is a generational shift. Yeah, that's a really great question. I think we we didn't happen upon that naturally. It was it was almost like we, we were starting to forcibly say, where can we find where people aren't aren't purposely looking? And, and so we, when we were doing the surveys, we got a ton of answers and a lot of them were Gen Z. And so it was really easy to say, oh, let's go naturally look for a younger audience. There's all these things proving that younger people are struggling. And anecdotally, 
you know, I feel like, especially for men or people who identify as men, that being, um, there's very few people that are, are very willing to talk about their mental health publicly. They will talk maybe one-on-one with a friend, but they don't really want to participate. And so as we continue to dive a little bit deeper and start chatting with even some of our closest friends, we learned really early on, like two years ago, that people don't want to talk about their mental health until they are struggling. You know, if you're feeling great, they're like, it's out of my mind. And that was a big thing that we wanted to get ahead of and, and solve. And we're thinking, you know, like, you don't wait till you get really obese to start going to the gym. You don't wait till you have a heart attack to start thinking about cholesterol. You don't wait to be, you know, needing caffeine every single second of the day to think about getting a good night's sleep. Why are we not thinking about the same type of analogy for your mental health? Like, why is it only when you're struggling? Is it now it's time to go get help? And I think that's the issue. It's because everyone thinks about getting help. And they think about reactive care. And from a business model perspective, it makes sense because insurance models are very oriented at always having patients that are always coming through the door. You don't want to always get rid of everything because then there's less money. So for us, when we were seeing other audiences, it was very clear in that perspective. I was going to challenge you a little bit. I'm like, you know, I think a lot of people do wait until they're obese and overweight to start going to the gym or they do have that heart attack to realize, you know what, I can't eat four pounds of bacon in the breakfast. So I, I think people do go that route, unfortunately. And I think that's why we, we see, you know, these terms and these things in the headlines now, which I'm happy about. Not that people are struggling, but people are very much aware of it. Like, hey, you know what, this this might not be something that we can just put on the back burner and ignore any longer I've always been a big fan of communication, proper communication, right? If, if you're struggling or you're presenting with a problem, I've always told my team, my family, it's okay to ask for help, no matter how big or how small it is, right? And so what I really like about your mindset is that we align on a lot of that of saying, all right, why is the current healthcare world so focused on what you called reacting to problems rather than going like hell, trying to figure out what are leading indicators that lead to problems so that we can cut that off when it starts, save lives, save money, save headaches, save a lot of gray hairs. And I'm one to talk now because I've got a little silver fox thing going these days. But there's a lot of stress and a lot of anxiety. So hey, where, where I'm going with this, Jonah, is picking on the current healthcare world. And I've had talks with high-level people in the Indiana State government and, and other places who are like, yeah, we have this big initiative on emotional and mental health. I go, great. What does that mean? Yeah. And you probably could answer that question better than I can. And they're like, well, we need to make sure people get the right type of help. And but we just don't have enough therapists and, and psychiatrists. I'm thinking, well, not every mental health issue needs to go boom, right to psychiatry. You need to start going on some massive, you know, antipsychotics, that kind of stuff. Like there's, there's a big scale. And so where I'm going with this is, is I want to get your opinion I always see mental health as this big scale. I might wake up and like, man, I'm really nervous about this meeting or this presentation. And then there's other people over there with multiple personalities who you know, are, are just a danger to themselves. All of that is considered mental health in today's society. So how do we build that awareness and that shift that it's okay to feel anxious and stressful and, and ask somebody and talk about it versus you don't need to be resorting right for medication until you have a severe, severe illness. Well, I think you really, you really teed me up to hit a home run because I mean, that's essentially what we're doing with dial. If I, if I was to even give any one line or pitch, what we're trying to do is democratize the first step that anyone would take in their mental health journey. 
And the reason why I think that that's so important is because unless people are able to advocate for themselves with the information, not just literacy, but also having the skills, feeling validated, feeling normal, building the confidence, then you're not going to be able to access the care system and take advantage of it in the best way for yourself. Then you're always going to be, you know, just pushing straight into one of those second, third step, fourth step options right away, because those are the ones that are really pumped up by, by bigger businesses. And so I think like, as we've seen in other industries, like there's a lot in this direct primary care world that has been pushing, you know, these concierge type services, membership based stuff, not insurance, no deductibles, whether it's for employee benefits, whether it's in other directions. And those are like, you know, future forward, which I think are really cool. And in the mental health space, what we're seeing is um, we're going to use content as that vehicle to democratize the first step because it's diverse as a default. It's much more scalable. As you mentioned, clinicians' time is really valuable and burnout is, is, you know, it's technically a clinical term now. And one of the biggest issues with that is you can't scale up a clinician's time in their day. They cannot do more than like, you know, nine calls a day. Otherwise the quality of care is going to go down. Utilization is going to go down. And they're also just one person. But what you can scale up is their incredible knowledge. And I think what we're starting to see with all these platforms and why all these Gen Zers are turning to social media is because the sheer volume of experiences that they can share in is enormous. You can, it's like an endless opportunity. Um, just like, you know, this can be really negative when you think about dating apps or pornography or other things of like this endless option. But from a mental health experience perspective, it's pretty cool to think about how diverse people and backgrounds and cultures and languages can really represent a whole gamut of issues. So you don't have to feel like, oh, I need to wait until I have anxiety or depression. But instead it's like, hey, my girlfriend or boyfriend or partner broke up with me. I'm stressed. Or I want to do great on my test tomorrow. Or man, I'm really nervous because XYZ is coming up. Those are the moments where I'm calling it the most critical places to take care of mental health. And I think that that actually is more of the day-to-day mental health. You know, On that spectrum, like you're saying, if clinicians and psychiatry and all of that are on one end, the whole opposite end is the thing that is never been done, which is what we're trying to do, which is using, you know, content and community to be that first step that someone takes. So I think from my like biased, very biased perspective, I think that we need more and more early stage options because that's going to help people better utilize the later ones. You know, if you've understood, if you built a good foundation, um, then you're going to be able to lay really great bricks. If you wait and you just start slabbing bricks all the way down randomly, your house is going to be falling apart. And that's what people are doing right now. And that's why there's this great literacy, but lack of access and, and action to care. We've always been advocates of saying, you know, your first phone call should be to your trusted physician or provider, whoever that is. And they can handle a lot of stuff there that society in the in the current in- insurance dominated world, as you said, just it's not in their business model. And so letting people know that, hey, you you have options over here, right? That's the that's the biggest thing. We're talking with Jonah Salida, co-founder of Dial, a mental health resource. And as you so rightly put it, Jonah, I love what you're saying of like, let's get like the step one here and be a resource for those people very, very early on. You brought up social media. I talked about this in my introduction. Are there positives coming from social media? Great question. Yeah, I I know that there's an enormous amount of critique and and a lot of it is really well done, especially from like, let's even just say like a data privacy side of things, the regulation side of things, the fact that people are very persuadable and we don't like to admit that. The fact that, you know, recommendation systems and recommendation algorithms are actually really cool and beneficial to learn your preferences. That like should be used as a tool. Many of the times though, because when they're paired with an ad-based revenue model, they're not always used as a tool because their goal is to keep you engaged for as long as possible. Obviously, the social dilemma, Tristan Harris, all of them at the 
at the Center for Humane Technology. They've all done a lot of work in that space. My personal opinion as we've grown Dial and worked is I think a lot of the mechanics from social media are really smart and really fantastic. And I wish that more care providers and care systems and educators and legislators understood them because they are really, really great. You know, they help connect people. They really do. They help provide an easy, frictionless experience to having fun and not just having some, you know, lecture or someone forcing adult curriculum down your throat. I think those things are really fascinating. The things that I think are, are really big struggles, specifically around short form video, is on platforms that are geared towards entertainment. If you also have therapists or other people claiming to be therapists or other people claiming to be professionals all in one place and there's no vetting and there's no way to clearly define it. If you're 14 years old and you're swiping through and someone goes, hey, smile through the pain, you're going to make it. And obviously you go to a professional, they would tell you never to do that. Um, you're you're going to be you know consuming information little by little that compounds over time in a negative way. What I think we're trying to do is say, hey, the social dynamics of these apps are meeting people where they are. If Gen Z is truly spending seven and a half hours of their day watching short form video, and we're still trying to push that they need to go to a one-on-one therapy session as their first step, we're, we're kind of blind to saying, what are we doing? Like, they don't want to do that. We know what they're doing. So why don't we create a solution that is clinically valid? So it's as fun as a TikTok or Instagram reels or YouTube shorts experience, but as reputable as care from a licensed professional. And, and that's why, why that's the direction we're going in, because we think content is much more scalable. We think from a business model perspective, there's the ability to have um, kind of a freemium model. There's other things we'd be testing, but other ways to completely avoid the ad-based model, completely avoid using data against users. Like that's just not in our ethos at all. And I think social media as a whole is going to be something that we continue to see used. And so when these apps come out that are going to be more like Dial, and I'm sure there'll be more in the future, I don't see them as a replacement to social media. I see them as an additional, almost like vitamin that you're taking in the morning when you wake up and check your notifications. But knowing if you're spending three to four to five minutes a day, every single day, those skills and tools are compounding over time. So at the end of the year, your toolkit is getting a lot bigger. So if you do happen to run into a problem, or let's say your friend or family member or parent is, you're able to help be a better advocate, help them get access to that next step. And then we have a lot more supporters out there. It's almost like a training platform. Like you're able to see signs or issues and then go out there and ask the question. And and I, I was like, I, I'm one of those people where you first joined Facebook and you had to have a college email address to do it, right? So I'm like, man, I, that's, yeah, that's, I don't think that, that dates me or anything, but it was a little bit more selective and then they opened it up. So like you said, it, for the first time, we're more connected to everybody than we've ever been. And it's, it's this feeling of almost overload. Yeah. You totally. see somebody, uh, you know, on a, on, from pick on the influencers, right? And what people are seeing is like, yeah, this person's successful. They're making a ton of money. That's great for them living their lifestyle, but they had to work hard for it. And I think that's one of the problems where people see, wow, I can just start this thing up and boom, I'm going to have a million and a half followers. I'm going to be rich doing it when nobody wants to put in the hard work. And when they start putting that hard work in and they get tough feedback, it's hard for a lot of you know, like that kind of younger generation. And, and this is, you know, coming out from experience, what we've heard to absorb feedback, use it, build it, and then, you know, be able to be a better person for it. Cause everything is kind of that you say, Gen Z, I say generation now. Yeah. And it's like, I want that right now. I want that. I want that. Right. Right. I want that now. Why can't I have it now? And so I'm, I'm, like I said, I'm one of those people that if, if I cannot log on to Twitter, Facebook, Instagram in my day, that's a good day. You know, that's an interesting I'm a little bit more private of a add. person. Yeah, I want to add one thing to that because I think that's really interesting when you mention influencers because that's definitely a really interesting side of social media because a lot of it just looks like highlights and very fake. Um, from a business model perspective, I actually think that a lot of companies, whether they're startups or bigger companies, are going to continue to have to become more of a media arm. So like, you know, props to you, obviously, with podcasting and finding a way to talk to an audience because at the end of the day, 
you know, what's easier to make? Could you make a, a hot dog that's really tasty and amazing? Or can you get a million and a half people to go to the hot dog shop? You know, at the end of the day, you could probably find a chef that can help you make that hot dog pretty easily. But if you're someone like, you know, even Mr. Beast, who did Mr. Beast Burger, and he's able to get pack an entire mall in two seconds and sell out, you know, I'm sure that you can get a better burger anywhere in the world, but it's good enough. So his product is good enough. And then he's able to distribute it and create a massive brand experience. And I think we need to be doing that for things that are in the health world. And unfortunately, unless you are a startup, it's really hard to take risks in the health world because everyone is really concerned about HIPAA and data and protection and old policies. And truly, the biggest thing in America, because I've lived in a lot of different international countries, is a lot of the bureaucracy around policies. So like, it's not even like a government or a regu- regulation thing. It's, it's more of, are we willing to, to take a risk and think about data in a different way? So like for us, like we're not saying we're decreasing your anxiety by 10%. We're not that type of outcomes driven. Our outcomes are more driven on competence or skill building. And a lot of clinicians or clinical background don't actually like that. And there's a lot of debate of whether that's actually something that they consider an outcome. But in order to be able to help people ahead of time, you have to think about what is this potentially preventing. And so I know in direct primary care, that is a world where they have started to adopt it, where you can talk about, you know, claims that have been avoided or avoiding uh, obesity or avoiding hypertension. And so I think we need to have that transfer into the mental health world more. And that's why we need a lot more teammates working on the same side from the healthcare world to the mental health care world to the primary care world, et cetera, et cetera, so that people can have those teams built out for them. And one thing you did not mention from the DPC world is it's accessible. It levels the playing field. Yeah. No direct primary care practice out there. None of the ones that we work with, none of the ones that we've helped start, none of the ones we've affiliated with or ones that have built themselves have ever turned somebody down for the lack of an insurance card or their insurance plan or whatever it is. I mean, these, these people out there are doing charity care. And it, it's amazing once you stop doing business with the government and stop doing business with insurers and get those contracts out there how much more you can do for your community. So it was a great, great uh, response you had there, but I would challenge you to add accessibility in there too, that somebody doesn't have two nickels to rub together. They're going to be sitting in the same waiting room as somebody who's the CEO of the, of the you know, largest corporation out there. And that physician doesn't care. They're there to, they're the most empathetic people in our communities. They want to help people. And so that's a level level playing field, you know, um, which I think is is seriously missing. People talk about health access and accessibility, and everybody defaults to insurance plans. And I'm just kind of pulling my hair out, saying it's not that hard. It's done in every industry, and I sound like a broken record when I do that. And that's where what's always been interesting. And again, you know, one of those reasons why I was really excited for this conversation. Once again, we're talking to Jonah Salida, co-founder of Dial, and. The whole medical world is, uh, like I said, you know, built on the reaction, built on, hey, I'm sick, help cure me, help fix me. Well, let's look at what factors led to your illness. Well, I don't have time to do that. I'm, I'm out of here, right, from a physician's standpoint. And one of my biggest issues with the way that medicine is currently conducted from a business standpoint is the amount of stress that it puts on a patient. And now don't doctor out there is going to be like, look, I didn't walk in here to put even more stress on you, but think how many hospital bills have bankrupted families and what stress does. And we know that stress is a major, major factor in future health issues, yet very few physicians out there are even aware of the financial stresses of actually getting medical care or being alone. And to me, the reason why I bring that up, that is a big miss coming from the medical community. And if you're a doctor and you don't know the price of something and you recommend that treatment to somebody... I, you're you're no better than the collection guy who's who's coming after you know somebody for some life saving therapy. You know my point with that, with what you guys are building from like you said scaling 
the knowledge that's in somebody's head, I, I think is brilliant because time is always the biggest issue. And that's you know, really where I wanted to go with that is if you go seek medical care and it causes you more stress, what good is it in the first place? Why would people even do that? Yeah. And it's not even just stress. Like I think from the direct primary care world, not the mental health world, it's so easy to think about going, you know, trekking across town to like a germ filled waiting room, sitting in there, looking at those magazines that everyone's seen, waiting for some meeting that's going to definitely start late. The person's going to come in, they're going to be like, you know, doing their pump. All right, let's get this going. And, and then two seconds in, they're going to be gone. And then you're already going to be like, all right, great, great, like, great appointment. Why could I have not done this in a different way? And from a mental health world uh, perspective, this the similar thing is when you would go straight up to like a school or a counselor or something like that. You know, and the, I think that there's actually been some very funny comedic TikToks or videos about this joking that, you know, like the guidance counselors are strapped so thin that they're always like eating their lunch while they're trying to talk to you and say, oh, no, it's OK. Like, I'm just I haven't had time to eat. And you're like the whole system in that sense is, is again, like struggling with bureaucracy because you can't, you just can't scale up enough people's time because you don't, you can't get one on one person. Like it's not a one-on-one ratio ever for a school, for a business, for an institution. And I think that's why we just need more options. So for dial to be a content based option, it's saying that, Hey, content's really accessible. It's global. It's, it's like a library of things, like almost like a Netflix where you can continue to go through, pick tons of different experiences. And so for us, we're actually not focused on anxiety, depression, all of those things. We're focused on your day-to-day interests, like sports, culture, technology, and then how that relates to mental health. Because a lot of the research that we did originally was the vice versa. And we found that it really wasn't working with younger audiences because they were more like, hey, I want to see the intersectionality of this. I want to know, like, how does media affect my body image? How does being on social media affect my self-esteem? How does playing sports affect my anxiety or my resilience? Things like that. And so that's been a huge direction that we've been able to go in. And our curriculum, we built it completely from scratch, fully proprietary, and it's it's content-based. But one of the things that's cool is we use a biopsychosocial spiritual approach. So integrated care, it's very holistic, as opposed to MMT or mindfulness memetic theory or CBT or DBT, because even though those are amazing and they're definitely a part of our approach, um, they're not the only solution. You know, if, if you are just broke up again, like with a partner, you're not just going to go sit down and say, hey, meditation is the immediate thing that I need to do. Like maybe you actually do need to talk a friend and just and just be heard and feel validated first. There's probably a lot of other options. And so those are somewhat limiting clinical underpinnings. And so from our perspective, if we really are going to truly say that we're the on-ramp for different cultures, backgrounds, and experiences, we also have to have a you know clinical underpinning that aligns with that. And so it's been an interesting road to get there, but I think that it's really, really critical that we have people coming from that diverse background too. Are you just dealing with Generation Z? And if you would, just kind of define that for us just in an age range. Or is this something that ages, I'm not about to say zero, but, you know, up to up to 199 can benefit from? No, really great question. So who can benefit from? I mean, it's everyone. The reason why I say Gen Z is because one, all the youth mental health problems are are where these things start. Like most of these issues begin before age 24. So if you can get to them earlier enough, we just believe that's like a bigger place to make a bigger impact. Um, from a business perspective, we're also focused on them because we want to start there and want to make sure that we can do a really successful job with younger audiences because they're eventually going to join the workforce. I mean, they're joining it right now. Then they're going to become parents one day and all that gets passed down, especially in the mental health world. So we want to make sure we can do a good job there. 
But really, like in the, in the very near future, what Dial is going to be doing is taking over the first step that anyone takes in their mental health journey across those different areas. So like art, technology, culture, everything. So and when you have a question that pops up in your head, you're not just going on Google or WebMD or or you're not just instantly trying to find a therapist and you're not also just going on TikTok. But instead, you're like, I'm going to go to Dial. I know there's clinically valid content that's super fun. Maybe someone's already covered this topic so I can get at least the baseline information. And then in the future, again, much, much later down the line, I think we want to do this on a global scale and also help connect people to the second steps. So maybe once they have understood and learned what meditation and mindfulness is, maybe then it is a good time to say, hey, we'll call up our friends at Headspace and call them and say, let's connect you there. Um, it's an easy way to you know, bridge the gap and help people take those steps. But for now, our focus on Gen Z is, is really just because that's where the, the needs are. We're, we're just trying to think about the market and, and like where people are struggling the most. Jonah, it, it kind, of, kind of triggered a question there. Um, and this is me coming as a, a father of uh, with a young family. Is there anything in your app or designs that, you know, if, if we know that mental issues are starting young, is there any resource for parents to say, wow, I never knew my kid was even thinking about these things or experiencing these issues? How do I help? How do I become a problem solver rather than a problem causer? Yeah, great, great point. And also, I know I didn't, I didn't say the actual age range. Our, our power users are like 18 to 19 years old because the transition from high school to college is usually when they feel like they have enough competence to be on their own and they've maybe conquered the previous experience, even if it was good or bad. And now they're going open-eyed into a new one saying, oh my gosh, like I'm kind of new to this. This is going to be more of an adult life. And so that transition is really like a huge place for us right now. Um, and then thinking about how parents play a role in this one, it's really critical, like not actually a majority, I would say of, of families are not very comfortable with therapy or talking about mental health still because the older generations much more struggle with the stigma much more than younger ones. And so that can be sometimes really problematic. And a lot of the times people will go on our platform and don't want their parents involved at all. So one, our, our accounts are not linked to parents. However, parents can go in and watch the same type of content. Purposely, we're at the earliest stage, almost like a borderline of not being clinically valid, but being so because we're that close to the fun side of content. And that's purposeful because we're not trying to identify people in need. We're trying to get to them way before there's even a small instance of that. And I think that that's a really interesting like mindset shift of saying, whoa, like how can there be a mental health platform that's really not identifying people in need like that? And not saying that we're not going to do that in the future, but I think one of the main safeguards and what we've done to really help provide that for parents and help for anyone, whether it's an administrator or coach, um, is we still have that original minimal viable product that we built, that alternative to 911 speed dial in the app. It's kind of like, it's, it's one of the features in your profile. If you pull it up, it has nine speed dials and one text dial. So it's 24 seven talk and text-based support from diverse specialized resources. All of our national partners like NAMI, SAMHSA, Crisis Text Line, Trevor Project, Trans Lifeline, very diverse and also meant to be there just in case you need someone in your back pocket. And then all the rest of it is obviously focused on the content and sharing experiences, building community. And our main features right now as the app sits uh, that we're launching really soon, an additional version is very short form content-based. And then the community ones are almost like these micro thematic group group chats where instead of having to yell down a hallway empty raising your hand saying hey i'm struggling look at me instead of that they're around themes so maybe there's the music club which might be a group chat so you can talk about drake or Nicki minaj or megan the stallion talking about their mental health in public and then that way you can share the experience and not feel alone without having to talk all about yourself Uh, you can share your favorite pump up playlist stuff like that so those are cool ways that we're bridging the gap between community and content to to do that and help parents and help uh just everyone in general 
kind of a resource for all there. Yeah, the, the family aspect. I was like, yeah, how do you break that cycle? Because a lot of family thing, you, you look at poverty. Poverty is a cycle because that's what people grew up in and that's what they expect and go on that route. So yeah, how to break that cycle and how to prevent these things from going in. So really a resource for, for everybody. Jonah Salida, co-founder of Dial. Jonah, thank you for joining us here. Wish you guys the best of luck. I, I, I think this is something that is needed now more than more than it ever has in human history. Yeah, thank you so much. I really, really appreciate you giving me the time and and really appreciate everyone listening. This is a really important topic to I think all of us. So we gotta we gotta all band together and make it happen. That's gonna do it for this episode of Healthcare Americana. If you haven't yet, be sure to subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast platform. Check us out online at healthcareamericana.com to catch previous episodes. Subscribe to our mailing list and visit our fantastic online store. Once again, I am your host, Christopher Habig. Thanks for listening. Check out healthcareamericana.com to hear all our episodes, visit the shop, and learn more about the podcast. Healthcare Americana is produced by Taylor Scott and iPodcast Pro and managed by Melissa Turpin. Healthcare Americana is brought to you by Freedom HealthWorks and Freedom Doc. If you've been struggling to get the care you need and the access you want, it's time to join your local Freedom Doc. Visit freedomdoc.care to find the practice location nearest you. Whether you're a patient, employer, or physician, the Free Market Medical Association can facilitate and assist you in your free market healthcare journey. The foundation of our association is built upon three pillars, price, value, and equality, with complete transparency in everything we do. Our goal is simple, match willing buyers with willing sellers of valuable healthcare services. Join us and help accelerate the growth of the free market healthcare revolution. For more information on the Free Market Medical Association, visit fmma.org. Hi again, everyone. This is Chris. At Healthcare Americana, we're always on the lookout for great stories to tell in the healthcare industry. And we'd like to hear yours. Check out healthcareamericana.com and send us your ideas for episodes or if you'd like to be a guest. Thanks again for listening. Hope you enjoy it.